For just one corporate job, only four to six people will get an interview for every 250 resumes received. Those aren't very good odds if you're counting on that job. The fact is, you need a real person advocating to a real employer that is a real job, and that's where Express Employment Professionals come in. Express is your local resource to help you get a new job. Express has more than 18,000 jobs available weekly. That's 18,000 jobs that need to be filled right now. Find your nearest office at ExpressPros.com, and Express never charges a job seeker to find employment. Your locally owned Express office can connect you with available jobs in your community. On ExpressPros.com, find jobs in manufacturing, accounting, customer service, sales, distribution, and information technology, you name it. Visit the nearest Express office today to speak with hiring professionals connected to the available jobs in your community. Visit ExpressPros.com today to find a location near you. ExpressPros.com. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Dr. Mary Neal back with us, a board-certified orthopedic spine surgeon who drowned while kayaking on a South American river. She experienced life after death, and she went to heaven and came back, conversed with angels, experienced God. She was returned to earth, though, with some specific instructions for the work that she still needed to do, and her life has been one filled with miracles and interventions of God. Here is Dr. Mary Neal back on Coast to Coast with her latest work called Seven Lessons from Heaven. Mary, welcome back. Thank you. It is an absolute pleasure. When you were with me... A couple of years ago, we were talking about To Heaven and Back, which was yeah. a prelude to this, sto- this story in this book. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about that uh, death experience or, or near-death experience, because you're here. What happened? <laughs> True. I am here, and suppose it's a near-death experience, but really most of these things should be thought of as death experiences. What happened is that I was in South America, in Chile, and I was kayaking with friends. And we had planned to kayak a section of river that's well-known for its waterfalls. And I mean drops of 10 to 15 feet, maybe a little bit more. Things that, for a non-kayaker, probably sound crazy. But for a kayaker, uh, they're exhilarating and challenging, but entirely reasonable, and they were certainly within our skill set. Mm-hmm. And we were uh, starting on the river and went over the first couple of drops, no problem, and we came to the first significant drop, and circumstances were such that I was sort of uh, propelled over the main flow of the waterfall instead of the smaller chute that we had chosen. And when I went over the top of the falls, I could see the bottom, and I, I won't say what I actually was thinking, but I was thinking, rats, this is not going to go well for me. Um, you knew it. Bottom, I knew. I could see tremendous turbulence at the bottom. I couldn't see a clean out. Hit the bottom, flip over, you know, be bumbled around for a couple of minutes because I assumed that I wouldn't be able to write myself pull the spray skirt off my boat, push myself onto the boat, and be spit out downstream. And that's a very unpleasant experience. It's something that is part of kayaking and certainly has happened to every kayaker. 
at least once. That's what I would assume would happen. But instead, my boat became pinned or stuck at the bottom of the, the falls. And the boat and I were immediately submerged under 8 to 10 feet of water. And I am a spine surgeon. I'm very calm and pragmatic. And I tried to free the boat. I tried to free me. And nothing worked. And it became clear to me that I was going to drown. And one of the things that was surprising is that I didn't feel any panic or fear or sense of ear hunger because I, at that time, had asked that God's will be done, and I actually meant it. I wasn't asking for God to rescue, save me, but I was asking truly that God's will be done, and when I asked that, I was immediately overcome with a very, very physical sensation of being held and comforted and reassured by Christ that everything was fine. What sent My you husband. back, Mary? What what sent you back to the living? Well, my kids would say that I was kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> but but I uh, was at this threshold, this point of no return, and these people or spirits beings who had taken me there uh, told me that it wasn't my time, that I had more work to do on Earth, and that I had to go back to my body. Did you? It wasn't my choice. <laughs> would you have stayed if you had a choice? Absolutely. You would have. There is no doubt. You I would... had no intention of returning, even though I had a great life. I had a wonderful husband, four young children that I love more than I could ever imagine loving on earth. I had a great job. I, had, I mean, no issues. I had every reason in the world to come back. Yet, in comparison to heaven, life on earth, seemed very pale, and I had absolutely no intention of coming back. I felt like I was home. Do you lose the connection of living when you're in that kind of state? Well, I can only speak from my own experience, and during my experience, I was still fully aware of the Earth and earthly events. I was able to look back and see the scene on the riverbank. I was See, I was able to see them pull my body to shore and begin CPR. I could hear them. And I think that oftentimes the world, you know, the veil between our world and God's world is not necessarily very thin, but I think it's really just a matter of perception. We're really not able to perceive it when we're fully in the earthly world. And I think it's it's a very um, transparent sort of thing. I think the spiritual world is all around us. It's just that we can't quite get onto that wavelength. We can't quite perceive it. I was at a, For me, I was fully aware of the Earth. I, I was at an afterlife <laughs> symposium this weekend in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I was amazed at the amount of people there who are so into this and so... Oh, yeah so drawn to get some answers and you know and we talked about things that you know obviously some things we don't have answers for like exactly what is the the living and what is the dying part of all of this and and what really happens Uh, but but everybody came away from that couple day event just feeling not in a rush to get to the other side but a little more comforted 
in the event that happens and when that happens? Well, I think one of the really wonderful, wonderful things that happens if you go through, collect information, and and truly get to the point where you not just hope that there's life after death, but when you get to the point where you truly accept that there really is life after death, when you've looked at the evidence, all of a sudden it changes your experience of today because it releases you from anxiety, worry, fear. It allows you to focus on today and being present today, being present in your relationships, being present in your activities, because you don't have to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow you can sort of compartmentalize and say, okay, there is life after death. I'll deal with that when it gets here, (laughs) instead of worrying about it. So many people are so afraid that they never really live. You write about in Seven Lessons from Heaven, uh, sort of a science of death from a medical person's perspective. Explain that for us. Well, it's fascinating to me because millions of people in this country alone have had near-death experiences or other really profound experiences, yet so so few people talk about them that most people when they have a near-death experience, don't really understand what happened to them. And if they delve into it or if they tell anyone, they immediately make the assumption that it's a hallucination or it's just the effect of a dying brain and release of neurotransmitters or something, or just a hallucination. People have all kinds of reasons. And I... I, as a physician, really had not heard of the phenomenon. If I had, I would have talked it up to sort of being a little too woo-woo out there, you know, not, certainly not something that was real and grounded in, in science. And after my experience, I spent many, many months trying to figure out what I thought had happened to me And I had good reason to discount it. One of the things I had been told about when I was sent back was the coming and quite unexpected death of my oldest son, who was young. I mean, at the time, he was only 10. And I was very motivated to find a medical or scientific explanation for my experiences, because if I could, then I could discount everything I'd been told during my experience, and therefore discount what I've been told about my oldest son's death. And so I was very motivated to find a physiologic explanation, just like everyone else. You know, it's just brain chemistry, it's just, you know, lack of oxygen, and indeed, I was without oxygen for 30 minutes. That's a long time. Oh, yes, it is. And that's according to the people who were there at the river who resuscitated me, who are professionals, and they're very well-versed in resuscitation. That's what they teach, that's what they do, and they had a stopwatch going, and they're very clear on the timeline. 30 minutes is not only way too long to survive, but it's way too long to survive without severe brain damage. Heck, I, I had heard five minutes, minutes would do well, that. exactly. By 10 minutes, the survival rate without 
severe brain damage is basically zero. By 15, regardless of the circumstances, the survival rate is basically zero. And keep in mind, I was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> we did not have advanced medical technology. We didn't have an emergency room. We didn't have anything. Mary, how do you know that what happened to you, though, wasn't some hallucination or something that the physical brain does as it's deprived of oxygen? Well, there are a couple of, not just a couple, there are a number of things. I went through and really actually looked at the science behind a dying brain, not just what we assume happens, because most of the things that we think about and we believe really are taken from one interpretation of one study and not necessarily based in science. So I went back and I looked at all the original physiology. And the thing that's, that's interesting to me, first of all, when the brain is without oxygen, the most sensitive tissue to cell death, and once a cell is dead, it's dead. The most sensitive tissue is the hippocampus, which is also that part of the brain that is most responsible for creating new memories. So, for example, in Alzheimer's or things like that, the problem is that people can't create new memories. They only have their old memories. So in a dying brain, the part that dies first, and this is within a couple of minutes that it starts dying, the part that dies first is the part that creates new memories. Yet, in near-death experiences, the new memories are not only created, but the memory of them is pure and absolute no matter how much time passes. It's fascinating to me because at this point, I have heard thousands of people's stories of near-death experiences or other profound spiritual experiences, and almost guaranteed the person who tells me their story starts out by saying, this feels like it just happened yesterday yeah. or something like that. And so the memory is, is impossible to reconcile if you look at the physiology of a dying brain. So that's the first thing. And, and I find that really interesting because you sort of don't get it both ways. Either the physiology, either you believe the physiology that we, pro we have proven in the lab, or you don't. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern, and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.